Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Uh, my name is Kevin Garcia, for those of you who don't know. And welcome to Life Bible Fellowship Church. We are glad that you are here this morning. We have been going through this uh, series in 1 Timothy called House Rules. And if you walk through, you may have noticed out there in the lobby those two chalkboards that have the house rules that we've gone through so far. You might be looking at that and going, man, there's like, there's two chalkboards now. You got to walk. There's a lot of things going on here. I go, we got to do all this. And is that on top of the Ten Commandments? And, but uh, today, we're, we're going to simplify it. I mean, Paul is going to simplify it because what makes all of this possible is us looking to Jesus. On a Sunday in 2001, FBI agent Robert Hansen did what he normally did and woke up and got his family ready and went to church. And after they had gone to church, he, he came home and he hung out with a friend and when he was hanging out with his friend, he gave his friend a copy of G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday. And after that, he went on a little stroll in a park and he took a black trash bag and he hid it under a bridge. And after he did that, he was immediately arrested by his colleagues. And his response to them was, what took you so long? See, way back when, when Robert Hansen started the FBI, he, he, he had a, a decent life was making money, had a job, and, but as Gary was talking about last week, it, it just wasn't enough. He wanted a little bit bigger house and wanted a little bit nicer car and you know, wanted to be able to get his thing, kids nice things. And, and so he, he developed a way to get more money than the job that was providing for him. And one day he walked into a Russian embassy and he volunteered to sell secrets to the KGB during the Cold War. And of, of some of the things that he sold was the identity of, of two American double agents who, when they were discovered by the intel that he provided, they were immediately executed. But, but Robert Hansen received over the course of, from the mid-80s up to 2001, when he was arrested, over half a million dollars for his efforts in helping the Russian government. One of the things he didn't count on, though, was that there's actually someone just like him in the Russian government who sold his identity to the Americans for $7 million. <laughs> And Robert Hansen is currently uh, in a maximum security federal prison serving, serving 15 consecutive life sentences for his involvement in the conspiracy, where he is confined to his cell 23 hours a day and is let out for one hour to have a time of observed exercise. And one has got to think, like, that probably wasn't the plan at the beginning, right? I mean, you know, you join the FBI, you, you want to do the right thing. You, if you're here today at church, you know, you're probably one of those people that you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to do the good and proper thing. But sometimes, man, the pressures of all these things that we're told, eh, we compromise sometimes a little bit, sometimes in small and sometimes in big ways. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11, Paul addresses Timothy and says, but you, man of God, and again, if, if you're a woman, that's, that's fine. This was just written to a man. You can put in there, but you, woman of God, but you, whoever is reading this letter, free from, flee from all of this. Flee from the greed. Flee from the quarreling. 
Flee from the false teaching and pursue these things. First thing he tells us to pursue is righteousness, right? Righteousness, which is just the opposite of wickedness. And sometimes we're like, well, it's a, you know, is, it, is it really that wicked? I mean, I know it's not that right, but is it that wrong? And we live in this, this area sometimes where, because everything's on a scale, right? I mean, the world's not black and white. You've heard this before. It's all shades of gray. We know there's extremes. Like, we know who's on either side. Like, you got Adolf Hitler, and it's like, it would be hard to be worse than him. And then it's like Mother Teresa, and it would be hard to be better than her. And so it's like, well, we're somewhere in the middle. We're, we're in that, that gray area. We, we flirt from sin. We, we flirt with sin. But Paul's saying here, you need to run away. You need to run as fast as you can from sin. He says to pursue godliness. And Gary gave us a definition of, of godliness last week, and I, I would just add to that, it's just the opposite of worldliness. To, to pursue God is to pursue the opposite of the world, to not have this short-minded goal of everything ends when you die, and to be able to see the eternal in a big picture. He tells us to pursue faith. And the opposite of faith is, is well, lack of faith, because I couldn't come up with anything better, but... <laughs> faith is, is taking something, right? Something that we don't have and believing that it's going to come to fruition. But sometimes that gets hard because we have, well, these agreements that we've made with God. And to be fair, God hasn't agreed, but we have assumed that he did. I had a friend in college was very involved in church was a worship leader for his youth group, was very plugged in, and people saw him as, as a leader in the community. But during that time, his, his mom got sick, and she ended up dying of cancer. And he, he was done with church. He was done with God. He was done with the whole thing. Because he had assumed, right, that there, this... This trusting in God was based upon some things that we think that we're getting that God never promised to us. And one of those things is that God says that tomorrow is not promised to you or to me. That sooner or later, this body, this mortal flesh will have to be put to death so that we can live in eternity with him. And if we take that as a presupposition to our faith, you're going to be disappointed. And at some point, you're going to have to struggle with that and realize that God never said that he would give you those things. For some of you, it's like, I'll believe in God as long as I can live this comfortable lifestyle. I can believe in God as long as I have this job. I can believe in God as long as I have this faith. I can believe in God as long as my children don't wander away. But God never said that you're going to get any of those things. He promised he would be with you even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But he did not promise that the comfort or the pleasures of this life is something that comes with walking with him. He tells us to pursue love. And love is the opposite of hate, right? And none of us hate anybody because that's terrible and wrong. We don't, I mean, because we don't say it out loud, right? <laughs> it's a slippery slope because we've been given permission in church to hate the sin, right? We're like, I hate thieves. That is terrible. You know, I mean, I hate I hate thieving. I don't, you know, I, 
But we, it's a slippery slope where we move from hating the sin to hating the people. He says to pursue endurance. And endurance is the opposite of, well, everything we face in this world, right? Because this is an impatient, instantly gratified world. Endurance is a little bit more than patience, right? When we look at that word endurance, though, it kind of means that like you're going through something. Like I can be patient like you're waiting for something. You're just sitting down waiting for something, you know, like you're waiting for class to be over or for it to turn five o'clock so you can drive home. You know, I can be patient at my desk doing nothing. But endurance is a little bit more than that. When we use the word endurance, well, most of the time we're talking about athletes, to be honest. And, uh, and man, from where I'm sitting on my couch, <laughs> eating my potato chips, watching them, it's, it's, it looks like they're just, it's great fun out there, right? But they are enduring. And these people cannot put up with this very long. I mean, if you're in the NFL and you're in your 30s, I mean, you're almost retirement age, right? It's brutal. In baseball, you can stay a little longer because there's a lot of standing around. But, <laughs> but they are enduring. Their body is, is being punished. And the ability to, to hold up under that is something that we look at people and we say, wow, I can't do that. That's why I'm on the couch, right? We are to endure. And part of endure is that faith. We can endure something if, if we know what's coming at the end. We can endure something if we know, if we trust that God has, have, has us. The last thing he says to pursue is, is gentleness. And that's tough for us too. I mean, as Christians, we have this great gift of the truth. And one of the things we're known for is giving the truth, right? We love to just tell people the truth. And sometimes we're, we're ready. We already have the speech prepared. We're just waiting for the moment. Right? And then we give them the truth. And we're justified because that's the truth. Deal with it, right? But sometimes we lack gentleness. We lack, we lack bringing people to the cross of Jesus. We lack showing them grace and mercy we're very ready to show them condemnation and judgment. We have to run away from sin. We can't get near the edge. We can't flirt with danger. It's a small thing that starts and leads to somewhere that we didn't expect. I don't think Robert Hansen thought that he would end up in this place when he started the FBI. He just decided he just needed a little bit more than he was getting from doing the right thing, because the rewards that he was getting from doing the right thing weren't instant or fast enough. In the Bible, we have a great example of this in the story of Joseph. And some of you may have heard, Joseph had a very nice coat given to him by his father. And he also had all these wonderful dreams in which he told all of his siblings that someday they were going to worship and bow down to him. And they did not like those dreams. And they told him, you need to shut up, little boy. And he didn't. He kept on having more dreams and kept on telling them his stories. And so they came up with this great plan. And they put him in a hole in the ground. And they walked away and said, at least he's there in the hole, right? And, and, but that wasn't good enough. He was still annoying as siblings can sometimes be. And so they decided they were going to sell him into slavery, and they sold him into slavery, and he ends up in the household of Potiphar, which was the head of Pharaoh's guard. 
And Potiphar had a wife. And Potiphar's wife saw Joseph. And he looked very nice. I mean, he had been in a hole for a long time. He was very tan. <laughs> and very thin. They didn't feed him a lot in the hole. And so she said, hey, you know, Potiphar's gone. Maybe me and you. What stays in Potiphar's house? You know. And Joseph took out of that place so fast, he ran. And she grabbed his coat and he said, keep the coat, I'm out of this place. I know where this leads because all sin leads to death whether you're aware of it or not. How much the lure is, how tempting it looks, it's leading to destruction and pain. And so he was out of there. And we know from the story, he wasn't instantly rewarded for this. In fact, quite the opposite happened. Because what did Potiphar's wife do? She lied on him. The husband came home and she said, oh, that boy came on to me. I have proof his coat is right here in my hand. And so Potiphar threw him in prison. And he had to endure. And he had to trust God. For those of you familiar with the story, you know that all of this was actually part of God's plan. He ended up being key to the Egyptian government and ruling over the food and saw them through a famine, and because he was able to ration that food, that he was able to save his lovely family that cared for him so much, and it brought reconciliation to that place. But he had to do the right thing when it was tough to do the right thing. Paul goes on to say in the next verse, right? Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And it's an interesting phrase that he uses there, right? Take hold of the eternal life. Like, I know how this went. I went to church one time, and there's a preacher, and he told me I was a sinner, and so I received Jesus in my heart, and then I have everlasting life. Like, take hold of it. I got it. It's here. Jesus is in my heart, right? Nothing can take that away. What's this? What am I holding on to? It, it's, I, I got it. I'm good. A lot of us think of our lives in, in these kind of compartments, right? We have a checking account, and the checking account is for now. And we have a savings account, and the savings account is for later. I receive Jesus in my heart for the later, later. That's why I have it there. Boomers and millennials uh, have been in this debate. And uh, if you're in, look, they're stereotypes. They're mostly true. Um, <laughs> I'll try to offend everyone equally. <laughs> Being a Gen Xer, I'm not involved, so I'll just referee. But, but the American dream is kind of born out of this boomer ideal, right? That what matters in life is you buy the house, you, you buy the car, you save up for retirement, and that's going to bring you security, and that's going to bring you peace. And then boomers had kids. And, and, and kids, as one of the things they excel at, is disagreeing with their parents. So millennials say, no, old folks, you have it all wrong. That's not what matters in life. What matters is experience. I want to go, I want to see the world. I want to try new things. I want to be able to post things to my Instagram account. 47% of millennials said that they would be willing to go into debt to take a vacation. And to boomers, that's shocking and appalling, right? 
And I have good news for you. You're both wrong. <laughs> I mean, we as Christians should know that, right? It's, it's about the eternal. That's what matters. And the eternal isn't something that starts after this life. The eternal is something that starts now. I mean, do you remember? Can you go back to that day when you received Jesus into your heart? When you came with your sins and your burdens and your brokenness and you laid them at the foot of the cross and you accepted the free gift of God's grace and mercy? That's when eternity started for you. Do you remember the cloud and the darkness being lifted and the joy that filled your heart? And I know sometimes the confusion, the false teachings that we hear day to day in life kind of cloud that over. But do you remember what that was like? Eternity starts now. False teachers aren't always on pulpits. In fact, they rarely are. And so that's sometimes why we miss them. We don't see them. They, they sneak in. They come in through the radio waves. And they come in over our TV. Right? You guys are getting loads of false teaching all the time. You're probably getting more false teaching than you are good teaching. Because they're there. They find the places in which they can whisper into your brain. And, and all of this is based on economics which is a sham science. And I, hopefully a couple of you are in that field and you can come and berate me after the service. I look forward to it. But it, it, it's, it's a broken science, right? Especially when we're talking about corporate science, because what does corporate science say? I mean, when a corporation takes over something and they say, okay, we're gonna sell coffee and we're gonna pay the farmer the least amount that we can and we're not gonna pass that savings on to the consumer, bad news for you, right? Because profit is what matters to our shareholders. And it doesn't matter to us whether or not the farmer can afford to take his kids to the doctor or whether he's able to afford safe farming equipment as long as we make another dollar. See, economics only takes in one factor, and that's money. Economics doesn't care whether or not we're pillaging natural resources how many forests we cut down or where our chemical runoff goes to as long as we profit from it. Because economics, as it is, and I know the field is changing, but it's not factoring in human life and the world that we live in. And at least you're looking at this like, well, I wasn't ready for this. It's all political and global economics. It doesn't involve me. You can at least yourself decide to value humans more than things. Every year uh, I go on a backpacking trip for five days and uh, a couple unfortunate souls go with me every year because I don't know why. Uh, and it's really not that bad. Like, it's going to be okay, guys. It's just like, but it's survival, right? And so, and so we take all of our food and we have to put it in a bear can uh, for those of you who know, that's a can that keeps out bears. I really feel like it should be called an anti-bear can. But you put all your food in there, and, and everyone travels with it, and we walk. And, and at night, um, you put the bear cans far away from you just in case the bears are interested. But they're locked and secured, and the bears can't get into them, and everything's great. So this one year I was going, and I had like eight people. It was a great year. Everyone was all excited. We're going hiking. And then we go, and we're camping, and we're hiking, and, we're, and we eat dinner. And everyone put your bear cans over there, and make sure they're locked. And, and they're, okay, everything. we went to bed, and we wake up in the morning. I look outside the tent where we had put the bear cans. There are no bear cans in sight. They are all gone. And everyone was like, that is like, this, now this is getting serious, right? 
Everyone starts sizing each other up, like who looks the plumpest? And uh, I'm like, guys, don't panic. It's only a five-day trip. We can carry on. And, uh, and, and so we go, and, and down in a gully, the bear cans are down there. A bear had come in the middle of the night, messed around, and he had knocked them all down there. Oh, thank goodness, there's the bear cans. So we go down and get them, and seven of the eight are untampered with and full of food. Now, this girl swears that she locked that bear can, and I swear if she did, we would not be in this predicament. <laughs> but there we are with the real situation, and we have to decide how much we care about this person. <laughs> right? But against my instinct, I'm like, okay, everybody, everybody, we, have, we all have to take a little bit out of our bear can, and we have to give it to her so that this girl won't die, because that will be hard to explain. <laughs> but it's like those moments, right? Because the question that we always have is, what if it's not enough? And so, as you know, at the end of the trip, I had plenty in my can, and everything was fine. But that's why we can't get away from this obsession because we're like, what if it's not enough? We save up for retirement. We're like, well, this should be good. But what if I get sick? What if my spouse gets sick? What if something happens to our kids? We, we may need a little bit more. And, and here's the bad news. No matter how much you save, you'll never know the future. You don't know what's going to happen. You're going to have to put trust in something. You're either going to put your trust in the fact that that is enough, or you're going to put your trust in the fact that Jesus has you in his hand, and you're secure with him for all eternity. And you have to choose because you can't have both. It will be very evident what you're trusting in. There's, there's two parables, and one of each is given to both generations. For the boomers, there's the parable of the storehouses, right? This guy, and I'll modernize it for you, he made a lot of money. He's like, what am I going to do with all this money? I got a lot of money. He's like, I got to open up a lot of accounts, you know, spread it out. Every time I get more money, I'll just open up more accounts. And then finally, he was like, you know what? I think I have enough money, so I think I'm going to call it quits. And boom, that day he died. Right? That's everyone's fear, right? We save up for retirement and the day after we die. And Jesus says, look, you're saving up for what? Something you don't even know is going to be there. And for the millennials, you have the story of the prodigal son. Because they're like, money for later? I need that now, right? I have places to go. I have people I want to hang out with. Can I have that money now? And you get the money now and, well, you end up back at mom and dad's house and Uh, maybe that's not a parable. Maybe that's just the truth. <laughs> Have you guys been paying attention to this, uh, this Popeye's chicken thing? It's just me? Okay. Well, Popeye's made this chicken sandwich and it went crazy. Everyone wanted it and they ran out. And then there's like, it's back. I don't know if you guys know this, but it's back. And uh, I'm only getting a small percentage of whatever this church buys, so. Uh, but it is a real problem. I had three this week. Uh, it is a very delicious problem. But one of the things that is happening, and this happened in, in Maryland, is, is two people got in a fight over this chicken sandwich, and, and one guy stabbed the other guy, and he died over a chicken sandwich. Some of you guys might remember in the 90s when Air Jordans took off and people were robbing people, beating them up and stealing the shoes off of their feet. 
And in a couple weeks, we get Black Friday, right? Which is where everyone just embraces the holiday spirit. <laughs> I mean, people have been trampled to death, seriously, to beat other people for outdated electronics. <laughs> You're not getting that big screen TV for anybody else. That's for you. You're like candy canes for all the grandchildren and a 60 inch TV for me. <laughs> but what happens, right? And, and hopefully the next day, these people are appalled by their behavior. Like, did I really do that over that? I thought that that was gonna be the end all be all. That was gonna transform my life. That was. I disregarded another human being because I let something get into my head that was untrue. And hopefully at least as Christians we can see that and know that these temporary things are not going to satiate your appetite. That you were made, that you have this draw towards the eternal. You were made for communion with God and it's the only thing that gives you the peace that passes all understanding. Nothing else is going to fill that void. My parents uh, recently retired because they're that, the boomer generation. And uh, you get that little thing in the mail, Social Security tells you, if you retire now, this is how much you'll get. You know? And my dad hit 16 and it's like, if you retire now, this is how much you'll get. And he was like, good enough for me, I'm out. <laughs> So we retired uh, a little earlier than, than some people. What they didn't retire from, though, is ministry. My mom leads a Bible study for Bible Study Fellowship, and my dad leads a Bible study of men at his church, and they're involved in ushering. And every time I turn around, they're doing something for the church. And why? Because they have time, and you don't retire from the eternal. I don't know if that like a spoiler alert for you guys, but like, as long as you have breath, you're in the battle. And this battle is important because there are people out there that are languishing in their pain or languishing in their sin. And here you are with the good news of the gospel. And it's not just something for you to hold on to yourself. It's that which we give to other pre people to bring them life and to bring them redemption. If you're here, you're in the fight. And when you quit your job, guess what? You're gonna be in the fight twice as much because you have the time to prioritize what is important. And people matter more than stuff. He goes on to say, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. And it's the second time that he's brought up this good confession. Right? He told Timothy, you made this good confession in front of witnesses, and we were not there, so we do not know what he said, but he said it's the same good confession that Jesus made before Pilate, and we can turn to the Bible and see what that is. And in John chapter 18, starting in verse 28, we see this debacle unfold. It says, then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, 
the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover because, you know, when you're doing dirty deeds, it's best to keep your hands clean. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they said, look, dude, if this guy wasn't guilty, we wouldn't be here. I paraphrased that first. Uh, and Pilate says, this is, look, this is your guys' problem. This is the whole thing we set up, right? Like, if, if the Jewish people can just kind of like self-govern, because we're busy over here pillaging and dominating, that would be great, because we really can't be bothered with this stuff. And the Jewish people were like, yes, yes, we understand that, but there's one thing you don't let us do, um, and that's execute people. And this one needs to be put to death. So Pilate went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, look, are you the king? Because people are saying you're a king and you're going to cause this uprising and revolt against Caesar. And we can't have that. If that's the case, you know, we're going to have to kill you. And Jesus says, is that your own idea or did someone else tell you that? And Pilate says, look, am I a Jew? Your people came to us. They said, you've done this thing. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. And tells Pilate, look, if you're, if you're thinking that I am a threat to your temporary empire, you can rest assured that I have no interest. If you are thinking that we are plotting some kind of political overthrow where we're gonna come after you with swords, I can guarantee you that that's not gonna happen. What I'm talking about is something that is way more eternal. You are a king, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you're right in saying that. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the, si on the side of the truth listens to me. And the good confession is this, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And all of us in our right minds would change, exchange, trade our worldly possessions for the eternal salvation that comes from Jesus. Because first of all, it's just smart. Because one's fading and one is lasting. And Pilate said what most people would say today, what is truth? The idea that everything's relative and quite frankly, Jesus, truth to me is power. And that's what's important to me. And even in the midst of Pilate not listening, he made that good confession. Earlier in, in the same chapter, in John chapter 6, some people came to Jesus. And because I don't know if you know this, but back then, like, you guys have options for a Sunday morning, so I applaud you for being here, you know, yay you. Um, but back then, there was like a lot less to do. So Jesus rolls into town, there's no Netflix, right? The Dodgers aren't playing. This guy comes in and he draws crowds. This is entertainment, this is a show. 
And a lot of times there were some benefits that came along with it because he was known for performing miracles. So if you were in luck, you would get to go see Jesus, a great speaker, very engaging talk, and he would also perform a miracle. And if you were lucky, he would feed you. Sometimes after, out of a magical basket, right? And you're like, the mission is free. What's not to like about this? So people showed up to go see Jesus in droves because people wanted to be in entertained. And this one group of people came to Jesus and they were wondering, I wonder if he takes requests. So they go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, glad you're in town. Speeching engagement was riveting. We were wondering if we could have a little bit of that manna that's talked about in the Bible, because that would be dinner and a show, right? We'll get some of that food. We won't go hungry. And Jesus, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he was very aware of people's attitudes and the fact that most people, I mean, he preached, right? Narrow is the way and few that come to it. He knew the people were not there to hear the truth, but he gave it to them anyways. He says, look, you're hungry. You want something to eat? Here's my flesh. You want to be part of this? And people are like, this just got weird, <laughs> right? So that's a no on the manna. Okay, we're going to bounce. This is not, no longer interesting us. And people left in droves. They could not hang with this. And Jesus wasn't like, oh, let me course correct, bring this back home. He's like, no, actually, you, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to be part of this. Everyone was like, man, this is strange. And what Jesus was talking about was the sacrifice that his body would make for our redemption. But those who can't hear the truth were blinded by that message and walked away. And he's left, you know, it was a weird day. (laughs) Normally crowds come and this one crowds were leaving. He's got his 12 disciples around him and one of them was like, man, so that was weird, huh? (laughs) And Jesus is like, are you guys gonna leave too? And it's quiet and it's awkward. And Peter starts to think and he goes, Lord, where are we going to go? Like, you have the words of life. Like, what, what else am I going to turn to? And, and I get it. Sometimes what God teaches us is hard and it challenges us. And we have to give up some of the flesh in order to participate in it. But where else are we going to go? Are gonna, we going to return to that life where we put all of our hope in money, in material things? Are we going to return to a life where we're competing against other people and we just have to prop ourselves up by tearing other people's down? Are we going to return to anything but the life that comes through knowing Jesus and Peter says, man, sometimes what you say really challenges me, but I can't go anywhere else because nowhere else has life. We look to Jesus. In Hebrews 12, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. There's that word, right? He went through pain, scorning its shame, saying this was not something that he was excited about, and we can understand that. He prayed in the garden and says, God, I see what's coming down the road, and I'm just going to throw up a prayer if there's any other way. Let's do that. 
Because I don't want, I don't have that desire to go through pain, to be whipped, beaten, and hung on a cross, spit upon and mocked. I don't relish that. I would like to go around that somehow, but not my will, but yours be done. He endured a temporary thing for the joy that was set before him, having faith in God that he would be raised to life. And not only in that, that he would defeat sin and death so that anyone that believes in him can be saved. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We look to Jesus. We turn our eyes to him. We look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You guys remember that song? That takes us, that focuses us, that puts us back to this passage, but also tells us we need to look on Jesus and focus on him. He finishes it up with this verse at the end, and this is a doxology of the book in this chapter, and for those of you who don't know that, it's, it's a passage or it's part of the Bible where we are led to praise and worship God for what he has done. And, and Paul, having revealed all of this to Timothy and saying, look, you're going to have to go through some stuff. I need you to stay strong. Have faith because God has got you on the other side, and when you start to doubt that, look at Jesus because he had to go through hard things, and God brought him through the other side, and God has been faithful, and he will be faithful to you. And because of that, we're going to praise God for who he is, and we're going to believe him for what is coming. It says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And in a moment, we're going to get a chance to do that to worship together. The band's going to come out, and we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. And I hope we more than sing it. I hope that it comes from our heart and that we realize, God, sometimes I confess I have looked to other things. And today, I want to come and repent and say, Lord, I need you. You are the life. You are the bread. And nothing else will satisfy me in that way. And I want to give a couple invitations to you out there. Maybe you're here, and someone brought you, and you're new to this whole idea of Jesus. And I want to invite you to accept him into your heart, that you can lay your sin and your burdens down and everything that's weighing you down, the guilt and the shame that you carry, and lay it at the foot of the cross of the Savior who died to wash away those stains and to bring you into his family. If that's you today, I invite you to that. There's going to be people up here on the left and the right of the stage. Come up and pray with somebody. And for a larger portion of us, probably what I'm inviting you to is to be involved in this ministry of reconciliation. I know we're all busy. We can all fill our schedules with something. But maybe you're looking at this and go, you know what? I kind of have been looking at this as entertainment. I kind of just come and sit and I go home and maybe I read my Bible. or But mainly I'm not getting into what God is doing, and I'm inviting you to be a part of the ministry 
of the gospel, the ministry of this Savior who is still redeeming and changing lives. Can anyone testify to that, that God has changed your life, that he's still doing it, that God is still moving in this church? And what we're inviting you to do is be a part of that, to pursue righteousness. Don't try to just avoid bad things, but run towards good things. And I know you're thinking, I don't need another thing to do. And I'm telling you, this will change your life to get involved. There is no thing greater than being part of the redeeming work that God is doing. You will never have a greater feeling than praying with someone and leading them to Jesus. You will never have a greater moment than walking with someone through their addiction or through their divorce or other pain that they have in their life and pointing them to the Savior who redeems and who heals. You will not be drained if you decide to sign up for getting involved in what God is doing. You will be filled up because that's the God that we serve. Even when we give. He gives back and gives in abundance and gives us something that is much greater than the things of this world that are so temporary. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the invitation that you have given to us, Lord, not only just to life, but also to put down our disease, to put down our addictions, to put down the ugly part of us and be washed in your blood, but also, Lord God, that you invite us to be part of the work, the continuing work that you're doing to save those who are still lost. Would that be our passion? Would that be where we put our value? And Lord, would we trust? Would we look to you? We pray these things in your name. Amen.